Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Well, here we are. It's a new season of After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni. I know you've been waiting with bated breath. Well, unbait that breath. No time for fishing today. You've got a new episode to listen to. Let me say, sound effects don't often seem like the right fit on this podcast, but kicking off a new season seems like the perfect place to use one. And since the air horn sound effect is so overused for celebration these days, I decided to do something different. To celebrate the start of this new season, here is the sound of a handful of confetti being thrown in the air. Can you feel the excitement? It's palpable. All right, I think that's about enough of the shenanigans. Let's get on to the episode. I've got a gaggle of great guests coming up this season, and I'm really excited about our season premiere guest. Apologist, evangelist, author, musician, golfer, you name it, he's done it in InterVarsity. The one and only Rick Matson. Now, I worked as a campus staff in southern Minnesota for almost nine years, and our area team had a number of sayings that started out with this phrase, a wise man once said, and 11 times out of 10, that sentence was finished with a gem of wisdom that Rick Matson himself shared with us at one time or another. So when I got to jump on a call with Rick, I made sure that as much of that conversation stayed off the cutting room floor as possible. So, as a result, this is going to be a two-part episode for you. This week, you'll hear about Rick's experience as a student with InterVarsity and his experience with life after college. Then, we'll try to stump the chump with some big faith questions. One or two of those questions will carry into the next episode, where Rick will then talk about sharing your faith post-graduation. I think that's enough lead-up. Let's get to it. Enjoy part one of my conversation with Rick. Rick Matson. Welcome to the After Four podcast. Hey, John. It's really great to have you on here today. For those who are not familiar, would you share just a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, what your role with InterVarsity is? I grew up in southern Minnesota, in small town America, and then came on InterVarsity staff in central Minnesota, and then here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, for the last 30 years or so. And my most recent position is traveling evangelist, apologist, evangelism trainer, all over the country. I think the last few years, I've been to at least 80 different campuses, and I keep going back to some of the same ones over and over. Of course, COVID was an exception where I really didn't travel hardly at all, and that was kind of hard being grounded all the time, so I did a lot of Zoom calls, John. I get around the, the country a lot, and we do these sessions called Stump the Chump. I'm the chump, so students can come and ask any question they want of the chump regarding Christianity, and my job is to offer a thoughtful reply, get them thinking. And then I do a lot of calls to faith, try to model that for undergrad chapters and for mainly graduate chapters. I work mainly for a graduate uh, division of InterVarsity these days. And yeah, here in uh, Roseville, Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, I have a nice family and five grandsons, a couple more grandkids on the way. I play the good game of golf. Isn't that right, John? That is correct. <laughs> yeah, and uh, do a little music. I think you and I might have played music together one or two times because I know you're a good worship leader and 
So yeah, I have all those things going. I've been blessed to get to hang out with Rick a number of times in the last 10 or 12 years. We got to partner together with a few of those Stump the Chump moments. And yes, there's been a number of occasions to be able to jam together. We're actually hoping that maybe one of these days you'll come down and visit our church plant and you and I could jam again sometime. You just invite me and uh, for a very large sum of money, I will come. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if we can talk to some of our major benefactors and work you in. You know, a $5 lunch at McDonald's would probably do it. Wow, we could make that happen. (laughs) All right, Rick, we've brought you on today because you do have a particular set of skills to be able to answer some really challenging, but very real life faith questions that people have. But before we dig into those kinds of things, we have a bit of a rhythm that we like to adhere to. We like to spend some time talking to people about their college days. And so I'd be interested to hear a little bit of your college story, Rick. Tell me, where did you go to school? What did you study? Were you a part of a campus ministry when you were in school? Tell me just a little bit about your college experience. I stayed in my hometown and went to college. It was cheap living at home, John. Uh, That was uh, Southwest Minnesota State University, what's now called SMSU. I majored in communications. I was involved in this group I'd never heard of before, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I thought it was a sports club, (laughs) but I had some friends there who were attending the uh, Evangelical Free Church in town, and they invited me, and that's how I came to faith, through the Free Church and through InterVarsity. So that was really important time in my life, definitely a turning point. And I remember some highlights, learning how to do inductive Bible study. I'd never heard of that either. You know, I read the Bible a little bit growing up, not too much. I was pretty much drifting away from God and then getting into InterVarsity and making a lot of quality friendships. Some of those people are still my friends. And that was more than four decades ago. I remember we went on the Aspen Evangelism Project. So Aspen, Colorado, we spent a summer there getting jobs and sharing the love of Jesus with vacationers and local residents of Aspen. I remember we went to a Bear Trap Ranch in the Colorado Rockies, just honing ministry skills and learning to become a disciple of Jesus. A lot of good memories. Unfortunately, I was a very immature person socially in other ways, but somehow I made it through college and I made it on to university staff. They must have seen something in me. And so here I am. Maybe for another time, you have some pretty interesting stories pre-college as well. Your Jackson 5-esque band (laughs) days. (laughs) Yes, the Osmond Brothers days. Yes, yes. Rick, I want to move up just to your junior, senior era as you're starting to think about the possibility of life after college. Did you have particular expectations for your life as you were thinking about what was going to happen after you graduated? I was very idealistic, I would say. I did have my eye on ministry. I felt God was calling me to ministry. And, you know, I thought that when I got out of college, if I came on university staff or if I worked at a church, we would build things quickly. <laughs> I was uh, maybe a little too cocky <laughs> <laughs> and had a lot of confidence in my skills. And, you know, that's not always the place to put your confidence. I don't deny I had ministry skills, but just expected to be successful and to do it fast and to rely on the strategies and abilities that were in front of me. And those expectations were often not very realistic. I thought that I could bring new ideas and new ways of doing things to whatever ministry setting I was going to be in. I'm not saying that those are bad instincts or intentions, but I was probably a little bit too confident, maybe bordering on arrogant, maybe not just bordering. (laughs) And getting those things done with people and didn't always wait for the spirit 
didn't always value the processes that one needs to go through to carry out good ministry. I didn't always value the wisdom of my elders. I thought I knew better than them at times. So <laughs> we got stuff done, maybe despite some of those problems. And I'm glad for all that. But you know, looking back, some of those expectations, I think, could have been more realistic and more biblical. There's my confession, Jim. <laughs> I think that many of us can identify with those sort of experiences, whether you're stepping into a ministry context or not. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to go into whatever field it might be, and I'm going to start cleaning house here. Like I'm exactly. going <laughs> to, I've got all this fresh new learning from college. I'm going to show these people a thing or two, and I'm going to rock it right to the top of the corporate ladder or whatever it might be. Well, I was very zealous for the faith and the people I was working with weren't always that zealous. So I was pretty judgmental against them. Get with the program. We've got a world to reach. We've got a kingdom to build. And again, those instincts do have some biblical roots and have some positive value, but I just overcooked it. I didn't take account of the partnerships the Lord was offering to me and just charged ahead at times, I'm afraid. Clearly, you have been shaped, you've learned, and you've gotten to see the Lord move in some really cool ways, I imagine, over your ministry up to this point. Definitely. There have been a lot of great things that have happened in ministry over four decades with InterVarsity. I think early on, I just needed to experience some failure, failure in uh, some ministry partnerships and relationships that I had and some of the methodology that I was using. And, you know, it's humbling. You do stuff and it doesn't work. And then you scratch your head and talk with some people. And then you come to realize, wow, maybe had I slowed down a little bit, had I taken account of the partnerships and the community that God was giving me and worked through the processes more soberly and, and more lovingly, this could have gone differently. And so eventually, uh, even those of us maybe who have a little bit too much confidence, you can get knocked down a peg or two. And I think that's a good thing. I think the Lord was gracious with me. The Lord knew I needed to be humbled. <laughs> and hopefully these days have a little bit better pace and a little bit better sense of how to work together on teams to get ministry done and rely on the Lord's spirit as we go along. And, you know, John, maybe not working so darn fast on everything, <laughs> maybe quality over quantity. It's the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise gets more done at the end of the day, even though it doesn't appear so. And ministry was just slower and harder than I thought it was going to be. And when I slowed down and worked at the pace of the spirit and worked at the pace of my teams, things started going a lot better, praise God. Uh, so hopefully I've learned those lessons over the years. It is interesting the way that our culture can creep into our ministry philosophy. We've got to streamline, we've got to make things faster, we've got to accomplish more, do more, get those numbers higher. I would like to think our heart behind it is right and good, but that we get a little confused about what the outcome must be. I mean, I think about at the end of Jesus' life, how many people did the Son of God himself have really hooked and ready to go? Probably not as many as we might expect, you know. God incarnate to have reached. This could have been a 40, 50, 60 year ministry. He could have ministered more widely, could have healed more. He could have stood in front of the masses. There are so many things he could have done. And yet he confined it just to, you know, two and a half, three years of actual ministry time and confined himself mainly to pouring into 12 disciples. 
And look at all that he got done uh, through that. Here's the guy who took time to stop and talk to little kids. That doesn't seem like a very strong investment of your very short amount of time on earth to talk to these kids. And yet he knew I'm going to move at the right pace. One of the authors I read, his name is Alan Fadling, and he wrote a book called The Unhurried Life. And one of the observations that he makes about Jesus is that Jesus is never in a hurry. How radical would that be in 21st century culture in general, even in church culture these days, that Jesus was never in a hurry. He did the right things in the right order, and he did quality work. It didn't have to be quantity, but of course, the more you do quality, I think the more you end up with quantity. <laughs> it's the unintended consequence, just doing the right thing and doing it well and working as unto the Lord. Well, I think that just makes a huge difference than more opportunities open up to you because you've done things well and you've done things in conjunction with your teammates. And so when more opportunities open up, then you end up with more quantity at the end of your life. But quantity wasn't necessarily the goal. The quality standard to me is more important. And Fadling writes about that regarding Jesus, that he's not in a hurry. He's not anxious. He doesn't have all this anxiety. He's not spinning on the wheel. He's doing the right things at the right pace in the right order. And if we would find that pace, wow, how powerful would that be for the kingdom? This is all bringing me back to a few leadership training sessions that Rick Matson was leading. Do just a few things and do them really well. And once you can do those things really well, then talk about adding another thing in. And then don't add anything else until you can do that thing really well along with the other things. It's nice to know that things that were relevant and helpful, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, and even longer back than that is still information that I can be applying and using today. Well, my wife, Sharon, might question whether I follow my own advice on all this. So. <laughs> I'm glad she's not on the call here. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk to her next week. Something that I'd be really interested to hear, Rick, you know, you talked about your expectations for life after college and then some of the reality of that. I imagine that there's also been some transitions and transformation happening as a result of questions that you were asking in your own faith post-college. You know, John, I never went through the big period of doubting my faith or doubting the truth of scripture. What I doubted more and what I struggled with was the church. I was in InterVarsity. We were nimble. We moved fast. We made changes when needed. Well, I got into the church and I realized the church moved a lot slower. So I was expecting more highly committed, zealous people to make nimble decisions so that we could get stuff done. And I found out that the church moves a lot slower than that. I was also, I think, frankly disappointed that the churches I was interacting with, the people just weren't more evangelistic. We had and have a message for the world, a message of salvation that the Lord of the universe has given us and is trying to use us to reach the world. Well, we weren't really proclaiming that message like I thought we should have done. So I was surprised as a new Christian who came to faith at age 19. So when I'm 24, 25, I'm out in the real world and I'm going to churches and things are moving more slowly. And it was a disappointment to me. So I was wondering, why isn't the church more evangelistic? Why isn't the church more engaged with the mind, with intellectual questions, with apologetics? I know students are struggling with these questions. Non-Christians in our neighborhoods are struggling with these questions. Well, we don't seem to be struggling with these questions or working on them very hard. In fact, sometimes the life of the mind was pushed to the backdrop. It wasn't even valued. I would hear things like, well, we value a heart knowledge, not head knowledge. I think there is something to that, actually. Heart knowledge is really important. But the Bible does call us to love the Lord with our heart, mind, and soul. The mind is in there. And I was wondering, 
why the church wasn't doing more with the intellect. And I was wondering, why is the church not just doing basic inductive Bible study that I learned in InterVarsity? Uh, we were watching videos and we were listening to national speakers or listening to sermons. And, you know, that material was good, but it's not like we were digging into the text ourselves in an inductive way, asking God to speak to us through the text. It seemed like quite often we were doing deductive Bible study. We already kind of had our minds made up of what we would find in the text. And the text then just became a sort of proof texting for what we already held to. Those are the kinds of questions that I was dealing with when I got out of college and into the church. I think I've made my peace with a lot of that in the church because I'm a highly committed church member. But boy, that was a bit of a shock to the system in my 20s, getting out and realizing not everyone was as uh, zealous about things and as fast moving as I was. So I've got a whole list of questions here that I'd really like to ask you, sort of our own stump the chump. So if you're feeling ready, I'd like to throw a couple of these at you and see what your thoughts are. I just put my chump hat on, so <laughs> go for it. Perfect. All right. You're talking about the church just not being very nimble as you went from college ministry experience into this church ministry experience. That brings up a broader question for me that I think people are asking, especially post-COVID or maybe mid-COVID is really where we are now, and online church. In this day and age, Rick, do we even need the church? Is there even a benefit to being a part of a church or to being a part of its ministry? Yes. But I think there's a deeper question than just the pragmatic question of whether or not I need the church, and that is the church belongs to Jesus. The church is Christ's church, that the Lord Jesus Christ loves the church, and the church is the body of Christ. And so if I want to align myself with the intentions and will and heart and objects of love of the Lord Jesus, then I, too, will love the church participate in the church, and not think that I'm somehow exempt from the church, or that I'm an exception, that I can just live the Christian life on my own, maybe with a few friends. The church goes all the way back to the early church. There's an unbroken line from the time of the apostles, all the way up through the Middle Ages and the Reformation, and into, here in America anyway, the churches that we attend. And so to say that I don't have to be part of that church. I guess I would challenge that assumption. <laughs> I don't mean this to be too judgmental, but there's a little bit of an arrogance in that to say that we don't need to submit ourselves to the institution that Jesus has set up, that Jesus started, that Jesus loves, and that Jesus has provided for our benefit, but not just our benefit, for the benefit of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Now, you could say, well, of course, God is the hope of the world, but God uses the church to reach the world. Therefore, the church is the hope of the world, and we need to involve ourselves in the very thing that the Lord Jesus has set up. And so, secondly, then, is there pragmatic benefit there? Well, of course, yes. And it can be a mixed bag. You go and you don't have that good of an experience. But I think if you keep going, and if you keep coming to the church with an attitude of openness and finding a way to care for and love imperfect people, the benefits are going to come back to you. Maybe not right away, but eventually they will, and you'll find yourself deep in that community at some point. And perhaps you are an agent of change and reform in that community, or perhaps that community has more resources and more goodness to it than you originally thought. 
we're not always right in our initial assessments of what a fellowship is. You know, you go once or twice and it doesn't really click with you and then you run off someplace else. But I think sticking around and giving churches a longer tryout can be very beneficial. And sometimes we don't see things early on that we're going to see later on. And we find out that we really do have a place there and that God is calling us there. And God is the one who has created a placeholder for us. If we will just take our station and serve humbly, I think things will work out. That's interesting. I mean, it makes it sound like we're asking maybe the wrong question first, basing it on what's the practical benefit for me being here? And maybe that's a secondary question to, well, is there something that Jesus has said or that the Bible says about why the church exists that I need to live into first and then ask questions about the practical benefits of being a part of this? Yeah. If Jesus were here on earth and he called us to walk with him, would we do so? Yes. Well, now he's in heaven, his spirit is here on earth. What does it mean to walk with the spirit here on earth? Well, it means to walk with the spirit in community, that is, in the church community, imperfect as it is. So that's why it's called the body of Christ. We each have a role to play, a niche to fill in the body of Christ. And when we don't fill it, the church is missing out on what we have to offer. But of course, we're missing out on what the church has to offer us. Christianity is always a team sport. Not to say that there aren't times of individual reflection with the Lord, there certainly are, but even those are extensions from the community where we go out and we have time alone with the Lord, but then we go back into community and we serve alongside our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, not just the organization, not just the institution. It is both of those, but first and foremost, it's the organic body of Christ. That's what I believe God is calling us to. I've developed a mantra that a number of my students and people that I go to church with have heard one time or another, that our time with the church and our worship is deeply personal, but it is also necessarily communal. One without the other is not a complete church experience, worship experience, faith experience. And I would say get used to it because in eternity, there's community. And the church community on this side of eternity is a kind of rehearsal for what's yet to come. And John, I just don't think we can skip the rehearsal. Maybe you've alluded to this a little bit already, but I'd be interested to know if the church is so important and such a big part of the plan that the Lord is in process of using, why is it that the church seems to do so much damage? Well, the church is full of sinners. It's not full of saints. I mean, we're saints officially, but unofficially in the reality of our lived experience we are sinners gradually being redeemed by grace. We get a bunch of those people together and you get them going on the same track. There's going to be problems and there's going to be conflicts. Sometimes church suffers from poor leadership or lack of accountability. Sometimes it just strays from its biblical mission, can't get on track. You know, I think of the Corinthian church. That was in some respects a growing, thriving church, in some respects a failing church. If you read the letters of Paul and read some of the commentators about, you know, a missing letter or two between Paul and the church, you know, Paul felt hurt by that church at times and had dispute with the Corinthian church because they struggled with doctrine. They struggled with leadership and leadership personalities. Gosh, that never happens anymore. <laughs> so the Corinthian church can serve as a realistic model for us to maybe ask ourselves, would I be part of that church? And I think the answer is yes, Paul believed in that church, even though there was problems there. That's why he kept writing to them, visiting them. So first, 
guess I just want to say that church sometimes does damage because it's full of sinners, but it's full of improving sinners. We are gradually being made into the image of the Lord Jesus. So I think sometimes the damage and the hurt is a little bit overplayed. I don't know the percentages, but I just think, you know, 90% of church people the last 2,000 years since the early church are humble, godly, God-fearing servants in their communities and servants in their churches who are hospitable and caring. Well, that's boring. That doesn't get a lot of press. The 10% or whatever the percentage is, I don't know what the percentage is, but the 10% of problems is what gets all the press. And so there is this narrative around college campuses these days, and maybe some in, in culture as well beyond campus that just says the church is always hurting, always doing damage. You know, I dispute that. Sharon and I have been going to the same church for the last 24 years here in Roseville, Grace Church Roseville, and it's had its problems. Well, Sharon and I have just said, we're not going to jump around and go to a different church every time we don't like a pastor or every time we don't like the worship styles or every time someone sends an unkind word to us. We're not going to change churches. We're not going to be consumers. We're going to stick it out here and we're going to be part of the solution. But I would still get back to my belief that you know, 10% of the time there's problems. And with 10% of the people, there's problems. But 90% of the time, it's pretty good. And so I don't want to overplay this narrative that says the church is always causing damage, always causing problems. Yeah, it contributes, but there's a lot of good being done by the church as well. I wish that narrative were lifted up a little bit. In fact, John, as long as I'm on my little sermon here, let me just say that our young people coming up through the church need to hear the stories of goodness of kindness, of success that the church has had over the centuries. They need to see the good that the church has done in healthcare, education, intellectual life, in service to communities. And somehow those narratives get buried beneath the criticisms of the church so that by the time you get to be a junior or senior in high school, you've heard so many criticisms of the church and you've seen them reinforced or confirmed in certain segments but you've missed out on the tremendous stories of sacrifice and service going all the way back to the Roman Empire that the churches have carried out. And I just wish that our young people could be more proud of their heritage. You know, there's good pride and bad pride. Good pride is thanking God for the good deeds and the good ministry of the church over the centuries. Bad pride is to pat ourselves on the back that, oh, we did this on our own or because we're so great or because we're saints or whatever. That would be bad pride. But I'm calling for good pride, good pride in our heritage. Read through Deuteronomy. How many times are the people called to look back on the good things that the Lord has done through you? Israelites are constantly reminded to look in the rearview mirror. If you want faith for the future, look in the rearview mirror and see what the Lord has done. What a great perspective to recount the good deeds that the Lord has done in and through the church. Yes. And if all that turns into a kind of triumphalism or for white people, a white triumphalism, that would be bad. We do need to acknowledge the sins of the past. And then at some point we need to move on and to see what the future could hold then based on what the Lord has done in the past. 
that should give us faith for the future. Rick, as we're talking about this, I kind of want to scale this question. As we look at the culture that we live in, certainly this is not the case for everyone. I'll note that right off the bat. But I think for many of us, we live in a world where we have very easy access to the things that we need and even so many of the things that we want that we don't need. Why is it that we even need God in the first place in this high access culture that we live in? What is the benefit of God in our lives? Sometimes it feels like I just don't even see the difference with or without him. A wise man once said, if you want faith of the future, look in the rearview mirror and see what the Lord has done. Words to live by, people. God has done great things, and he will continue to do them, even through imperfect people like us and during imperfect seasons like life after college. Well, if you'd like to hear more wise answers from the wise man, Rick Matson, come on back next time. I mean, I know you're dying to see how he answers that last question. Do we even need God? Spoiler alert, we do, but he has some great thoughts as to why that is. In the meantime, like, subscribe, follow, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at After4Pod, and stay up to date on new episodes. You could also check out Rick's blog at rickmatsonoutreach.com, where he engages with many of the big faith questions we've all asked at one time or another. They're always short and incredibly well-written entries. I can't recommend them enough. You can also find links there for purchasing his books, Faith is Like Skydiving and Faith Unexpected. More about those in the next episode, too. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you next week with the rest of Rick's interview. Until then, see you next time, alumni.